0: You die. we abandon ourselves to you. We surrender ourselves to you because you are able and you are faithful and you are willing to do all things and oversee all things. We love you, God. We thank you for loving us. Thank you for sending your son Jesus to make a way. And we honor you and glorify you this morning. We thank you for this time of praise. And we ask this in your holy and awesome name. And all God's people said. Amen. 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 You be. Well, we uh, celebrated a baptism at the beginning. Do you all remember that? You do? And I don't know, but I, I read in Scripture that, you know, that the hosts of heaven, that they celebrate when that one sinner who repents and then enters into eternal life, the heavenly hosts celebrate. And I just wonder, like, do you think maybe we could give them a run for their money this morning? Do you think we can? Because... There's a little kid sitting there in the back row, and there are people here that have been Sunday school teachers that are moms and dads, brothers and sisters, people who have loved on and invested in that little person. And I've been a part of churches in the past that Stephen was talking about, the golf-clapping churches. I don't know if you've ever been to one, the golf-clapping church, when someone goes from death to life and people say, man, that's, that's great. Where are we going, Mike? Where are we going to lunch today afterwards? And I really wonder, could we rival the hosts of heaven? Can we? So, Pearson, this isn't just to celebrate you. This is to celebrate the God of eternity who reached down and clutched you from the enemy's hand. And we want to say, yes, yes, that is our God. Woo! I don't know why people are still sitting down. Why are you sitting? The hosts of heaven are not sitting down. They're excited. Abandon unto Yahweh. Amen? If you were here last week, you got to hear me preach a little bit. I made it through all of one word in Psalm 107. Yada. And I tried to make a good case for a translation of that word into abandon. And if you missed that sermon, then you can go back on the website and you can pull it back up. And today and for the next several weeks is going to be a continuation of Psalm 107. So, since I'm preaching from Psalm 107, I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. See, because I think it's a little bit premature for us to begin with. Abandon unto Yahweh. yada. You look up at the picture there, and there's this big, huge guy. He's caught in midair, catapulting himself off of a diving board, about to do a world-class belly flop into a pool. That's what it means to abandon. That's what that word yadah means. It doesn't mean that we dip our toe in the edge. It doesn't mean that we wade in. It doesn't mean that we get sprinkled a little bit or somebody douses our head a little bit. That's why here at this church in poetry, we do full immersion baptism. Because we believe that it's not about getting wet a little bit. It's not about playing on the edges. It's not about mommy and daddy doing something for you when you were a little kid. It's about you making a declaration with your life, making a profession that from this day forward because of God, who he is and what he's done for me at the cross, he was pierced for my transgressions. He was crushed for my iniquities. The punishment that he took upon himself brought us peace. And because of that, like the man in that picture, I am abandoned, Yadah, unto Yahweh. And if that doesn't sum up your relationship or your feeling towards Christ, we have a baptistry full of water. And maybe today, maybe, maybe you say, God, I never have abandoned unto you. I've dipped my toe in. I got sprinkled. Mommy and daddy did something for me when I was a little kid, but I've never abandoned my life and stood before God's people and said, this is my testimony. From this day forward, because of who he is, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. See, the old Pearson is dead inside of those baptismal waters. And he was raised to truly walk in newness of life, abandoned unto Yahweh. That's what Ephesians chapter 2 begins with. He says, and you, you, that's every single one of us who have ever lived, you are dead in your trespasses and sin. Do you believe that? See, because if you don't believe it, then everything else that you do in your Christian walk, in your Christian life is a joke. It's a farce. You're playing a game. And when Jesus walked the earth, he looked at people that played the game, the religious leaders, and he said, you're hypocrites. You're hypocrites, you're actors, you're charlatans, you're fakers. And there is no greater abomination unto God, no greater abomination unto God than being a faker. See, because people who are lost, when they look at you and they say, that's what it is to be a Christian? Well, then I don't want any part of it because your life doesn't really look any different than mine, except after you get drunk on Saturday night, after you surf on the internet and look at things that you're not supposed to look at, after you lead the kind of life that your neighbors and your family and your children know you lead, you have the audacity to come in and put on your Sunday smile. Praise Jesus. Amen. Could I get amen, brother? And your children are sitting there trying to keep back the nausea, the vomit that's welling up inside of them. And they say, I know who you are, Dad. I know who you are, Mom. I know who you are. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. Admit it, in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit, now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children of wrath, as the others were also. If you've never come to grips with the fact that you were, or possibly still are, a child of wrath, there's no way that you can ever truly give thanks unto God. There's no way that you could ever praise Him, because He says in Proverbs, He says that whoever turns a deaf ear to the law, and that's not just legalism, that's the story of who God is, the Torah. Whoever turns a deaf ear to the Torah, the story of God's redemptive grace working its way out to the ends of the earth. When you turn a deaf ear to that story, he says that even your prayers are an abomination. So don't you dare bring a prayer to me if you don't believe that you're dead in your trespasses. Don't you dare. Psalm 107 Psalm 107 begins, as I said, Abandon unto Yahweh. Abandon unto Yahweh, not unto tradition, not to religious ceremonies, not to a denomination, not to nostalgia, not to a good person or a good teacher. Oftentimes people say, well, I like Jesus. He's okay with me. I don't believe that He's God. I think he was, a, he was a dude. He was a guy. He was a good teacher, kind of like Buddha, Confucius, one of those guys. And I love what C.S. Lewis has to say about that. I don't know the exact quote, but he says something along the lines a paraphrase. C.S. Lewis says that for someone to do what Jesus Christ did and make the claims that he made, to say that you like him as a good teacher is nuts. It's absolutely nuts. It would be like saying that you believe in someone who called themselves a poached egg. Why would you follow someone who said that they are God incarnate, Emmanuel? Why would you say that you like that person? He's either God and we fall down at him and we abandon unto him in worship and we give him our lives 100%. Or we turn our backs on him, as C.S. Lewis says, and call him the devil of hell. So you can't dabble with Jesus. He didn't leave that option open to us. He's either God, the eternal son, or he is the devil of hell that is trying to lead you astray. And we know from the story that he is God. He is the eternal son. He is the redeemer He is the Good Shepherd. He is the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the cosmos for you and for me because He is a relational God. Yadah unto Yahweh. We say in our English translations, the Lord. I was having a conversation with one of my kids last night. and I said, I wonder why it's not that hard for us to take the word Yahweh and put it in our English Bibles. It's not that hard. But yet instead, we turn it into the Lord. And then kids grow up, and they learn history, and there are all kinds of lords. There were landowners in medieval Europe. There are a lord of this, the lord of that. You go over to England, and there's Lord so-and-so and Lord so-and-so, and Jesus just happens to kind of fall in. He's Lord, but there's only one Yahweh. Yahweh there's only one Yahweh, and if you're going to say that I'm going to abandon as the man in that picture, I'm going to abandon, launch myself completely, totally abandon unto Him, who am I abandoning unto? If we don't know the story, we don't know who it is that we're abandoned unto, we're just playing a game, folks. If you're someone that teaches youth or you're teaching children Sunday school in a church and you don't know who Yahweh is and you couldn't have a conversation with children, then I don't think you should be teaching. Because if a little kid or a youth or even an adult comes up to you and says, who is this Yahweh that the pastor was talking about and you're not licking your chops and wringing your hands, oh, Stephen, let me tell you who this Yahweh character is. I'm going to tell you. And I'm going to flip my Bible open to the book of Exodus. And if you want to turn there, you can too. Exodus. Exodus chapter 3. It's not the first occurrence of Yahweh, but it's a pretty profound one. Yahweh, Exodus chapter 3. Moses is saved from Pharaoh's punishment of trying to kill all the Israelite babies. He actually ends up being Picked up from the Nile River by Pharaoh's daughter, raised in Pharaoh's household by his own mother. Isn't God good? (laughs) Ha ha ha. How do you like that one, Pharaoh? You're trying to wipe him out and you're raising the kid. Moses is now a, a full grown man and he's left Egypt because he murdered someone out of rage and anger and he's fled for his life. Many years later, Moses is a shepherd taking care of his father-in-law Jethro's flock. Verse 2, it says, Then the angel of Yahweh appeared to him in flame of fire within a bush. You say, well, that's kind of strange. Well, they didn't have Zoom back then. So God appears to him in this bush, and it's on fire, but it's not being consumed. And in verse 4, God calls out to Moses, 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 Moses says, Here I am. God continues and he says, in verse 6, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Why would God say that? Because he's trying to prove a point to Moses that he didn't just become the God of something yesterday, that he is the eternal God. He's the God of Abraham. I made a promise to him. We're going to come back to that. And that promise went on through Isaac, and that promise went on through Jacob. And Jacob is the father, the patriarch of the nation of Israel. And the Israelites are now in Egypt, and they've been in slavery for 400 years, just as God said to Abraham would happen. And now, in verse 7, God says, I have observed the misery of my people, my people, do you ever think about God as being a personal and intimate relational God? Or do we just think about him as being this cosmic vending machine? He's out there somewhere. I don't really know much about him, but I know that if I pray to him and I tell him my problems and I hit the right button, then you know, that, that, that thing that I asked for is supposed to come out at the bottom. And if it doesn't happen, then I go, well, I didn't really think he was there anyway. That's the problem, Going back to Ephesians chapter 2, going back to Proverbs and that idea, if you don't believe the story and you don't believe the author of the story, then even our prayers are an abomination. God says, I've observed the misery of my people in Egypt, and I've heard them crying out, God has ears because they've been oppressed, and I know about their suffering, and I... I didn't send someone, I have come down to rescue them. You have a personal God who wants and desires to rescue you. And he did that in and through the person of Jesus Christ at the cross. I thought I might get an amen there. Amen. I've come down to rescue you and to bring them out from the land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. That's the good stuff. It's the good stuff. But Moses, in his insecurity, in verse 11, Moses says, Who am I? Isn't that us? God's sitting there telling Moses who he is. And Moses has to turn and make it about him. But but who am I? And God, the father, doesn't get angry. He doesn't slap him upside the back of the head as some of us fathers want to do with our kids from time to time. He doesn't do that. Moses, in his insecurity, says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should tell him to let the Israelites out and come here? Verse 13, Moses asked God, if I go to the Israelites and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, And then they ask me, more insecurity, what if? What if? Y'all ever come up with those what if questions? I would share the gospel with someone at work, but what if? What if? I don't have a seminary degree. I don't have my PhD. I'm not Pastor Kevin. I'm not Dr. Jeffress. I'm not an evangelist. I'm not Ravi. I don't know all the answers. Do you have faith that God is the God of eternity, that he's got your back or not? See, because if he's the one that laid it on your heart to go and have that conversation, he's got you. Otherwise, don't have the conversation. Maybe what you should do before you have the conversation and hand them a track or give them a New Testament, maybe what you should do is you should start living out your faith at work. <gasps> what? Pastor. Maybe you should be a testimony before you ever open your mouth. What if? What if I ask them, what is this God's name? What should I tell them? And God replied to Moses, I am who I am in verse 14. This is who you are to say to the, this is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. I am. That's Yahweh. Our God is. Yahweh is the great I am. God also said to Moses, say this to the Israelites. Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Jacob, and the God, the God of Isaac, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. What's his name forever? What is his name forever? Yahweh. Yahweh. How often do we sing to Yahweh. How often do we sing to Yahweh? Do we even know what it means? Well, now you do. And so now when you pray, you can pray instead of just praying to the Father or just praying to Jesus or just praying to the Spirit, you can pray to Yahweh. It's not just a Jewish thing. God said that that is my name that I will be remembered by forever, from every generation. Yahweh. So when we say, Yadah, unto Yahweh, who is this Yahweh? He's the God of Moses. He's the emancipator. He's the one that frees us from bondage and sin and chains and addiction. He's the one who rescues. He's the one that takes us from the darkest places and the pit and raises us up to walk in newness of life. Amen? He's the one who sets our feet upon the rock that is Christ Jesus. Amen? abandon unto Yahweh. Who is this? That's who he is. Why? Why is Yahweh doing all this? Why is Yahweh doing this for you and for me? Why? I'll tell you why. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 15. Abraham had a question for God. In Genesis chapter 12, God said, Abraham, I want you to go somewhere. And Abraham went. Because of his faithfulness, God said, because of your faithfulness, through you, not just his genetic offspring, not just his children, but because of your faith model, so that anyone who is a child of Abraham is someone who acts the way that Abraham acts. When God says, I want you to do something, I want you to abandon unto me, and you respond in obedience, you are a child of Abraham. Amen? It's not just for people who are Jews. The Jews weren't even a people yet. God made a promise to him, and he said, go. And Abraham went, and he said, through you all the peoples, not just the Israelites, all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And then Abraham was fine with it for a while, but then come to chapter 15, kind of like Moses, he's starting to get a little leery. I'm getting old. God made a promise. I'm supposed to have a kid. I'm starting to get worried. God says, I'm your shield. I'm your very great reward. And Abraham said, Yahweh, Elohim, what can you give me? Could you imagine saying that to God? I hope you can because we do it every day, right? God, what can you give me? I want to see something tangible. Crank it out, God. I asked you for this and it better be here. Eight o'clock in the morning, don't be late. I asked for it. Show up, God. I need that promotion. I need that check in the mail. I need it. I need my kids to act this way. I got to have my employer do this. I got to have my employees do that. The pastor better do what I tell him, or I'm going to go to another church down the street. He better stop wearing Hawaiian shirts and flip-flops. I know that for a fact. What can you give me? God, again, being the loving father that he is, didn't slap Abraham in the back of the head. But instead, he said, in verse 5, Abraham... I want you to look up at the sky and can you imagine how beautiful and perfect it would have been before big cities and electric lights and all of the light pollution in the sky in that wilderness and for Abraham to look up at the sky and all of the perfection and to see the Milky Way and the billions of stars that were up there and for God to say, my son, I love you and I just want you to know that because you asked, not because I have to, but because you asked i'm going to tell you that how you can know is that when you look up at the skies that aren't covered with clouds or toxic gases it's perfectly visible on this desert night and you look out and you see all of those stars i want you to know that your children are going to be more numerous than all of those stars amen that's our god how can I know I'll possess the land that you're going to give me, he says in verse 8. Even after he says that. So God sends him into a deep sleep. Verse 13, he says, Your offspring will be resident aliens for 400 years. Does that sound familiar? We just read about a guy named Moses who's supposed to deliver the Israelites from 400 years of slavery. God prophesied it. He said that was going to happen generations before Moses ever walked the earth. Your offspring are going to be aliens. They're going to be oppressed and enslaved in a land that's not their own. But I'm going to judge the nation they serve, and afterwards they're going to go out with great possessions. You, you're going to go with your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. And in the fourth generation... Those people, your offspring, they're going to return here. They're going to return here and they're going to worship me right in this very spot. And then something amazing happened in verse 17. When the sun had set and it was dark, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch appeared and passed between the divided animals. That's what's called a unilateral covenant. Abraham didn't walk through. It was just God. Just God. God knowing full well that we, humanity, would be the ones to break the covenant. And God said, you stay at that end. You don't have to walk through. He's foreshadowing Christ. Is that no matter what we do in our sin, that because we have a God who is faithful, he's the God of the city. He's the God of the nations. He's the God of eternity. He's the redeemer. He's the one who's full of Kessid love, covenant loyalty. He's unlike us. What we do is we make a promise and we do a handshake. And then when we decide we want out, we hire attorneys to find the loopholes. We get a divorce. We ostracize family and children, broken lives, hurt, pain. Everywhere we go, whatever it is that we touch, it turns to destruction and chaos. But not our God. Everything that he touches turns to goodness and life and light. And he says, I'm going to be the one that walks through that path. And I want you to know that all of this land, that's going to be your descendants' land. Why would God do all this? He's a God of covenant promises. He's a promise keeper. He made a promise to Noah. See, when God flooded the earth, he didn't flood it for, out of rage and his terror. It's that we believe that if we just had one more chance, Stephen if I just had that reset button, right? If I had the reset button and I could wash everything clean and start over, then, God, this time I'm gonna get it right. And he says, no. You're never going to get it right on your own. You need me. You're depraved. You're broken. You can't do it. You can't do it. And so God gave us a picture through Noah and the flood in chapter six of Genesis said that God looked down on humanity and saw that every inclination of their hearts was only exclusively evil and depravity all the time. All the time! Not me. What? Not you? See, God is a promise keeper. He made the promise to Abraham is the one that he kept through Moses because of the promise that he made to Noah. I'm never going to flood the world again with water, but there's a flood that's coming that's the wrath and the judgment of God. And like Noah's ark, there's only one way out. You either get in through the one door that is Jesus Christ and then you ride above the wave of wrath and flood that destroys everything that's disobedient, everything that's sinful and broken. You either put your faith abandoned unto him or not. Well, why would God do that? Well, let's go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. And if you're wondering, is a pastor going to cover the entire Bible in this sermon? Maybe I will. Maybe I will. Genesis chapter 3, if you're not familiar with the story, in Genesis 1, God created everything, and he separated, and he ordered, and he caused everything to function, and in chapter 2, this personal God, this Yahweh Elohim, the one who is dwelling in the garden, formed humanity, Adam, from the earth, and he breathed life into his nostrils, and he told Adam, he said, don't eat from the tree, of the knowledge of good and evil. Because when, not if, when you do, surely you will die. See, God already knew. Revelation 13.8 tells us what? The lamb slain from the foundation of the cosmos. God wasn't surprised by our sin. Did you know that? It wasn't as if God said everything in motion and then we rebelled against him and God said, Oh, plan B. What? Let me... Uh, Jesus, do you have something? Spirit, what do you got? I, I don't know. What are we going to do? The lamb that was slain from the foundation of the cosmos. God knew what we were going to do. And he still decided to move forward with the plan. Why? Abandon unto Yahweh. This is who he is. They rebel against God. They eat the fruit that they're not supposed to. And just before God sends them out of the garden from dwelling in his presence, the wellspring, the source of everything that is good and pure and true and holy. In Genesis 3.15, he says to the woman, I will put hostility or enmity between you, he's saying this to the serpent, I will put hostility between you, serpent, the leader of the rebellion that led her into temptation. I'll put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring, Those who follow you in rebellion, and her offspring. And her offspring, in the Hebrew, that's a singular male, one. Her singular male offspring. He will strike your head, serpent. He's going to crush your head. And in the Hebrew, it's the exact same word for what it is that the serpent is going to do back to that offspring. He's going to strike, crush his heel. So it looks like it's going to be a stalemate. He's going to crush your head. You're going to strike his heel. God made a promise to her. Eve, through you, we look in verse 20, the man named his wife Eve because she's the mother of the living. The Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. The first sacrifice anticipating Christ at the cross, that he would cover our sins, and that through Eve and the promise that God made to her, see God, Yahweh, the great I am, the eternal one, he is a covenantal God. He's a promise keeper. So let's go back to Ephesians. Let's go back to Ephesians and finish what we started Ephesians chapter 2. We began and we read, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, that's the serpent, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts And we were, by nature, children of wrath, as the others were also. Are you ready? Are you ready? Verse 4, but God. But God. See, God could have left it right there. You're children of wrath because of your disobedience and your sin. Have fun in hell for all eternity because that's what you deserve. That's what you deserve, Kevin. Yes, Lord, that is what I deserve. But God. But God, who is rich in some of our translations, read mercy. That's the Hebrew word, kesed. That's what they translate into loving kindness but because God, who is rich in loving kindness, in covenant fidelity, because of his great love he has for us, made us alive with Christ. Even though we were dead in our trespasses, you are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. So that, y'all ready? So that, In the coming ages, he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith. It's not from yourselves. Are you thinking that you made a good decision to follow Jesus? Other people made some bad decisions to follow Buddha or to follow Mormonism or to follow this or to follow that, but I made the right decision. How's that self-righteousness working out for you? the only reason why you've been redeemed is because God chose you. For you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. It is not, 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 not from yourselves. So stop walking around like self-righteous Pharisees. Stop looking down at other people and other denominations. Oh, they don't have it right. We've got it right over here. It's not from yourselves. It is God's gift. And when we don't act like that, what we do is we act like the religious leaders of Jesus' day that he said, you're hypocrites! You're turning people away from me instead of towards me! Stop! For we are his poema, his workmanship, his wisdom created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared Ahead of time for us to walk in. Are you walking in it? Or do you just say, I asked Jesus into my heart. I've got my hell insurance. I'm good. Now I get to look down at everybody else who doesn't measure up because I'm in and you're not. Therefore, you guys are probably wondering at some point, when's he going to get to Psalm 107? Here we go. Abandon unto Yahweh. Abandon unto Yahweh for goodness. His kessid, his covenant loyalty, his faithful love is everlasting. Therefore, verse 2, let the redeemed of Yahweh declare, proclaim, announce... If someone was to ask you, what's your testimony? I want you to share your testimony, as I've shared with you. Coming up next month, we're going to be doing a series, My Testimony. And I, want, I just want to give you a little word of caution. If you get up and you stand up here to share your testimony, and it's all about you, you're giving a horrible testimony. Psalm 107, verse 2 it says, let the redeemed of Yahweh proclaim, announce, declare, he has redeemed them from the power of the adversary, the foe, the enemy. If that's not your testimony or a huge part of it, all of us were sinners. If you're going to spend all this time talking about what it is that God redeemed you from, then you're making it about you. It seems to be that you're highlighting more about Satan and his power as opposed to God. I'm going to spend all this time talking about everything that was wrong with my life and then at the end say, but I asked Jesus into my heart, Stephen, and now I'm good. That's my testimony, folks. Scripture says, let the redeemed of Yahweh proclaim, announce, declare, he has redeemed us. Is that your testimony? that he has redeemed you, put your hand out in front of you and close it like this. And you close that fist as tight as you can. And your life depends on is inside of that not getting out. And it's going to be pretty difficult for someone to pry your fingers open, isn't it? Now imagine the power of Satan. You and I, all of humanity, are in Satan's hand the most powerful enemy and adversary in the entire cosmos. You're not getting out. You're not getting out. Think about that. There is no power in heaven and on earth that's going to get you out of there except the grace of God. So when you ask yourself, why should I abandon unto Yahweh? Young people who are in the service today that are looking down at their phones and maybe reading comic books and scanning things on the internet and playing games and thinking about other things it is that they may be doing later on today. La, 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 la. Yeah, Pastor, whatever. Abandon unto Yahweh. He's calling out to you this covenantal God of eternity, the Lamb that was slain from the foundation of the earth who's worked his way through Adam, through Eve, through Noah, through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, through the tribe of Judah, through King David, all the way until Jesus Christ arrived on the scene. Emmanuel, God with us, the eternal Logos. And he went to the cross, took the knees, pierced for our transgressions, the spotless and perfect lamb. And what do we do with our lives back unto him? I'll give you an hour on Sunday as long as a pastor doesn't go over. He goes over and I'm out of there. And I'm certainly not sticking around for that table fellowship stuff, because we just got done talking about that. I've got, a, I've, got a, I've got a brunch appointment to go to. I've got people. And my people have people. We got stuff to do. I'll give you an hour and that's it. What about fellowship? What about your faithfulness? What about someone who's here today and their brokenness? And God is saying, I want you to stick around and I want you to go over to someone and I want you to say, you know what? God put it on my heart that I should come over and I should say good morning to you. And I want to know how I can pray for you and how can I help you? How can I encourage you? My brother, my sister, my friend, my fellow member of the bride and the body of Christ. See, because we're all members of one body, Pastor Kevin's doing his job. Are you doing your job? Let the redeemed of Yahweh declare that he has redeemed them from the power of the adversary. That's what baptism's about, folks. We got to see a picture of that today. As Pearson walked down into those baptismal waters. And when I asked him, why are you doing this, Pearson? He said, because of my relationship with God. See, when young people don't have a lot of words and they don't have an extensive vocabulary, they make it really simple. And I love it. Why are you doing this? my relationship with God. He redeemed me. What else can I do except give Him my life? Abandon unto Yahweh. Abandon unto Yahweh for goodness. His Kessid, His covenant fidelity is everlasting. And then verse 3, this God, this Yahweh, the I Am, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of David, the God of Israel, the God who came down in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. He's the one who redeems us from the hand of the foe. He's the one who gathers us from the earth From the east and the west, from the north and the south. I'm not going to preach this dogmatically and say that you got to walk away. This is, you got to walk away with Pastor Kevin's translation here. I just want to give you something to think about. I shared with someone before the service today that the Psalms are poetry. I don't know if any of you have ever written poetry. Maybe it was when you were younger, maybe it was when you were in love. And you were writing a, a poem to the love of your life. And there were things, ideas, and concepts that you had only experienced together. And there were little words that you could write that only that person would know what you meant in that combination of things. And when we read this and we say, and he's gathered them from the east and the west and the north and the south, and we just move on. And that's why I'm going so slow through this psalm is because I don't want you to miss it. God's word, as it tells us in Proverbs, it truly is hidden treasure. If you slow down, and instead of sitting there say, I gotta make it through the Bible in a year, I don't care. If you made it through one verse in a year, but every day you went back to that verse, and God taught you something new, revealed something new, that you went deeper and deeper, and it cultivated your relationship with God, Is it better to cover the entire thing and get nothing out of it or to cover one verse and at the end of that year you say? That word for east means the place of the sunrise. It could be the direction east, but if you've ever woken up in the morning, You look to see the sunrise. Before we had Google and GPS, and we knew that the world was round and all those sorts of things. Back in ancient Hebrew, all they knew is that as far as I could possibly see, the first time that the sun comes up, that's the edge. That's as far as you can possibly go. That's where God's redeemed us from. As far as you could possibly imagine in that direction, from the place of the sunrise not just the east. Well, there's some people over that way, and there's some people that way, and that way, and that way. And then we just kind of move on. But it's poetry. It's powerful, colorful language. He's redeemed people from as far away as you can imagine in that direction. And then we turn in the opposite direction to the west. And that word in Hebrew sounds a lot like the place when the Israelites grumbled against God after they'd just been delivered from 400 years of slavery. Mirabah, the place of strife and grumbling and contention. That word sounds a lot like that, west. Ma'arab sounds a lot like Mirabah. And I'm not saying dogmatically that you have to read it that way or that it's even what it means. But God delivers us from the place of the sunrise. He delivers us from the place of strife. And contention and grumbling to the place of the north, and that word "north" also could mean a hidden place, a secret place. It was a place you had to worry about. It was a place that was far away that that's where invaders came from. It was the one you had to worry, and you were wondering whether or not you were safe. and God delivers you from that place of worry and of tragedy. And of discontent. And he takes you from as far as you can see over that way. And he takes you from as far as you can see over there in contention and strife. And he takes you from this place of worry and just wondering and the darkness that's over there. And then we turn around the place of the south, Yom in Hebrew. It doesn't just mean south, it also means the sea. And the sea was a terrible place in Hebrew culture the unknown, the dark, the deep. And so when you read it as poetic language and you glean from it as hidden treasure, it's more than just, he got some people from over there and over there and over there. Yeah, yeah, let's wrap it up. He's delivered my mom or my dad from his far away as it could possibly be. He delivered me from a place of grumbling and discontent and strife in my life. He delivered my wife or my child from a place that was so far away of worry and concern to the north. And he delivered my son, who was lost in a sea of hopelessness, So when we read God's Word and we have the expectation that He'll speak to us and He'll reveal Himself and His covenant fidelity in and through it, it's not this dry book. It's not these dry, meaningless words. And the only response, the only appropriate response is that we abandon unto Yahweh. I don't know what God's doing or what he said to you today, this week in your life. I don't know, but I know that there's a little man sitting there in the back that told his mom and dad, I'm going to get baptized. Next week is the week and I'm going to do it. I'm going to abandon unto Yahweh because of my relationship with God, because of who he is and what he's done for me. And I wonder... Have you ever truly been baptized? Have you ever abandoned unto Yahweh? Maybe today's the day that you need to do it. The baptistry's full. Don't worry about what anybody here has to think about it. Don't worry about your spouse or your children or your parents or anybody else. If God is pressing upon your heart that you need to abandon unto Him in baptism, then respond in faithfulness as Abram did. That's his covenant fidelity. And when we do that, God is faithful. God is faithful. Whatever it is that God's putting on your heart today, during this time of invitation and response, I pray that you would respond.